Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. This week is a submitted story, which I really enjoyed when I read through it, and I hope you do too. It was written by Ethan Mills, and you can check out his Twitter feed at Ethan underscore Mills underscore 42. If you are an up-and-coming writer of weird fiction and would like to see your story featured on the show, drop me an email, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to discuss it with you. Unfrozen Eons Drown the Future by Ethan Mills By the time we understood that the seas were rising and the climate transforming, most of us had forgotten to ask why. Would that I could return to those days of placid ignorance before I had lifted the veil, before I had glimpsed the visage of humanity's doom emerging from the ice. I did not set out to become an amateur climate scientist, for that is, in a manner of speaking, what I am at present, until, quite recently, I was a trader in antiquities. My part in this tale began several months past upon my arrival in Greenland. I was in search of Paleo-Inuit archaeological artifacts when fate, or some other force I dare not comprehend, intervened. An Australian named Garland invited me after I inquired on a website dedicated to the enterprise of antiquities. We met at a well-lit bar in Nuke on one of those eerily bright summer nights, balmier than in previous decades, of course, but still cool compared to the summer I left in Tennessee. Mr. Shorley, I presume, she approached as I walked through the door. We shook hands. She was a tall, imposing presence with, as I would soon discover, a penchant for e-cigarettes and an odd linguistic habit of insulting the grandfathers of those she did not like. The bar smelled of vodka and stale beer with a background of tobacco. Indeed. Please tell me this journey is worth the trouble. Well, that'll be up to you, I suppose. But let's have a drink first, shall we? It was clear that business would have to wait for our libations, so I concurred. She took a drag on her e-cigarette, letting the smoke curl into the sunbeam behind her. We ordered vodka, a drink to which I am only rarely accustomed. We chatted about my trip and her brief sojourn in Greenland as part of her collection of prehistoric Arctic artifacts. Do you have other buyers for such things? She sipped her vodka and stopped for a moment. Yes, but, you know, if I told you they were, I'd have to kill ya. We stared at each other for three seconds before she burst into laughter. A joke. I chuckled politely. She, smiling, took another drag off her e-cigarette. And what do you want with a bunch of artifacts from Greenland back in America? I thought for a moment. Personal interest, partly, and I do have buyers of my own, and I won't ask about them. I'm pain of death. She erupted into laughter again. I'm interested in early religious rites and what we might learn about life in harsh climates. Not as harsh as it used to be, but then that's the problem nowadays, isn't it? Indeed, I sipped my vodka. I've never been a fan of that Slavic concoction, much preferring the nuance of the Japanese whiskies produced in the land of my maternal lineage. Vodka always tasted to me of bald turpentine. Still, I was on my second, Garland on her fourth. I met this Swiss guy last week, scientist of some sort, Leuenberger or something like that. His grandpa was a bloody sheep fucker, I'll bet. Anyway, he's been doing ice core research for 20 years. You know where they drill way down in the glaciers? 
I've heard of it, yes. Anyway, this guy blew in whatever, so they found something odd in the ice. Oh? My response was more out of politeness than genuine interest. That is, until Garland reached into her satchel and produced a package roughly the size of my fist, wrapped in brown leather, streaked with stains of dark crimson. This isn't what I was going to show you, mate, but I'll acquire this. A gleam of some emotion passed over her eyes. Greed, delight, or perhaps it was madness, I could not say. She unwrapped the package with no small degree of reverence, it seemed to me. Nested within the brown leather wrapping was a metal statue roughly seven centimeters high and four centimeters wide. It seemed an oblong sphere at first sight, but upon closer inspection I could see a chthonic visage sneering at me from some dark well of contempt. It was not quite human, but not entirely inhuman either. It looked something like a ghastly infant with crocodilian features. Only. And here I wish not to think beyond my initial apprehension, but an odd compulsion drives me on. The lines were all wrong. Unearthly. Eldritch. Entranced by this unnerving delight, I sat motionless for some time, perhaps one minute, perhaps five, until Garland interrupted. It's not for sale. Her words broke my momentary hypnotism. I turned to see that she, too, was ensorcelled by the artifact. We sat silent for another minute or more, our vodkas untouched, until she severed our reverie by depositing the artifact back into its leather cocoon. Blinking, I asked, How old is that? Well, here's the thing. Lundberg, or whatever his name was, told me this was found in the ice core at a depth formed over 11,000 years ago, the beginning of the Holocene epoch. But that's thousands of years before humans lived in cities, before the wheel, before humans set foot in Greenland, before civilization as we know it. Yeah. Wild, huh? Indeed. Well, I cleared my throat. Uh, <clears throat> I suppose I ought to ask what is for sale. We conducted our business as originally planned. I procured three new Paleo-Inuit walrus ivory carvings for my collection, each one a swimming polar bear of the kind that often sold well at auction. Garland received her rather handsome fee, yet it was the ice-core figure that haunted me, and in doing so, changed the course of my sojourn on this earth. And not for the better. I returned to my life in America. My business, my books, my cats, my stately home on Ridge Road in the Green Mountains of East Tennessee. I thought of the ice core artifact from time to time, or rather I thought of it constantly, that cherubic reptilian smile. I dreamt of it too. Glimpses of cyclopean creatures descending upon Greenland in monstrous crafts, depositing their statue on the ice for what purpose I could not comprehend even in dreams. Sometimes I awoke, sweating, petrified, remembering that face, that uncanny visage staring without seeing, but with vision of some other kind that probed deeper yet. After five months, I received a letter from the autonomous home rule government of Greenland. They claimed that one of the Paleo-Inuit statues I had purchased from Garland was, in fact, property of the people of Greenland. A fact, suffice to say, on pain of my reputation, she had not disclosed to me at the time of sale— I was instructed to return it immediately. I decided to plead my case with the authorities to see if I might keep the artifact for a small fee, yet when I sat down to compose my reply, I instead found myself writing that I would return the artifact personally. But, of course, that ivory carving was not what was drawing me back to Greenland. 
Before my departure, however, I received a visitor most strange. It was the type of balmy November afternoon to which I had become accustomed in the last decade. I sat on a chair on my front porch, sipping an iced tea, my gray cat Bucky curled asleep at my feet. Bucky was startled awake and darted back inside the front door. I looked up from my book on Greenland history to see a figure approaching. She was a small woman, so short it was not immediately apparent to me that she was an adult, at least until I saw the creases on her forehead and her thinning gray hair. She walked with a faint limp until she stopped about two meters from the edge of my porch. She squinted at me as if assessing whether it was worthwhile to speak to one such as me. Mr. Shorley. Her voice was a thin rasp. I had to concentrate to parse her words. I could not place her accent, but it was not one heard often in the valleys of Appalachia, or for that matter, in North America. I come to inform. We servants of he who compels from the ice are watching. We are waiting. Unfrozen eons drown the future. I stared for a moment, attempting to piece together this unfathomable string of words. Who? What are you? Who are you? What? Who is he who... As I stumbled over my words, I noticed that my visitor smelled of charcoal and wood ash with a sliver of gasoline. A warm breeze whistled through the air, shaking loose radiant orange oak leaves that floated inexorably towards their decomposition in the soil, providing a momentary barrier of foliage between my visitor and me. I have said what was to be said, she snapped. We are waiting. We are watching, Mr. Shorley. She turned slowly and began to walk away. I heard Bucky hiss from inside the screen door. I turned to see him standing at the screen, bearing his fangs back arched. When I rotated my gaze back to the front yard, another breeze sent more leaves to the ground. Yet my confounding visitor was nowhere to be found. Suffice to say, I did not sleep well that night. I had considered fleeing the scene and retiring to a nearby hotel, but I decided that I would stand my ground with my cats, and at that time my visitor's nebulous remarks did not seem serious, more puzzling than threatening. Yet now, in the retelling, I understand how terrified I should have been that night. I locked and barred the doors, yet I could not secure my nocturnal mind. I dreamt once again of Cyclopean voyagers from the stars and their descent into the prehistoric ice. I saw Garland's artifact with its uncanny countenance, and a new phrase had been added to my own neurological repertoire. Unfrozen eons drown the future. Large section of Greenland ice sheet sinks, climate catastrophe looming, was the headline on my phone the next morning. I began to read the article, but was interrupted by a text from Ms. Morris, my cat-sitter. I assured her that I had left enough food and litter for two weeks, but she wanted to confirm I didn't need her to look in on my feline companions that evening. As I typed, Bucky regarded me with the regal cool that ennobles his species. I sent my text, and I scratched Bucky behind his ears, assuring him that I would return to him and his siblings soon. I gathered my bags and deposited them on the porch. I bid the cats farewell one last time, shut the door, locked it, and turned to my bags. A glint of metal in the morning sun caught my eye. There was something on the edge of the porch. I approached it cautiously, the previous night's occurrence on my mind. It was a small coin, roughly the size of a U.S. or Canadian nickel. I picked it up and examined it in the mild morning sun. 
It was that face, or some iteration of the same species, I suppose. Neither human nor inhuman, like some fever dream of the mad Englishman Alfred Harris read. Whereas the face on Garland's artifact looked indifferent, almost serene, this face had eyes narrowed, crocodilian mouth turned down. It appeared angry to me. At me. If I had any sprig of consolation, however, it was that this coin was unnerving due to its appearance on my porch. Yet the coin itself did not exert any particular pull on me. Nor did it have those eldritch lines all wrong, at least in our earthly frame of reference. Rather, it appeared to me of human origin, a knockoff, if you will. Yet this unsettled me in a different way, for it meant that my visitor of the previous night was either not finished with me, or she had compatriots bequeathing unwelcome gifts. I was being watched. For what purpose, I cannot say. I texted Ms. Morris, Watch the property for strange visitors. Thanks so much. During my journey, I read more about the Greenland ice sheets. I also searched for information on He Who Compels from the Ice. On the former, the news for the world was dire, as this would precipitate a distinct rise in sea levels, but I would inquire further upon my arrival. On the latter, I found nothing save a horror story written in the 1930s and a brief inquiry on a conspiracy theory blog. The horror story was odd, but decidedly forgettable, some loquacious obscurantist nonsense about a cult of wealthy white Americans worshipping a cephalopodic demon. The conspiracy theory, however, was of a great deal more interest. I found a discussion of the theory on a blog entitled Conspiracy Fun, written by a citizen journalist going by the sobriquet Illuminator 77. The theory claimed, with little in the way of evidence it seemed to me at the time, that there was a hidden society claiming origins in the mists of prehistory with the goal of altering the Earth's climate. It was said to have included many kings and leading men, and perhaps a few leading women, throughout history, including industrialists, robber barons, steel magnates, diamond extractors, and colonialist exploiters of all kinds up until the class of current-day billionaire tyrants. Their purpose was unknown, set by the indecipherable whims of beings from the stars. Illuminator 77 opined that this secret cabal worked toward a climate in which such creatures might thrive upon this planet as they had in other solar systems, or perhaps they sought to use Earth as a ranch for some xenobiological livestock. As for when they were coming, no precise time was given other than when the ice melts and unfrozen eons drown the future. Concerning what might happen to humanity upon the arrival of these beings from the stars, no information was provided. As for who these beings might be, the eccentric blogger used the same title I had heard from my unwelcome visitor, He Who Compels from the Ice. But that was not all. Alas, no. There was also a name, unpronounceable to my tongue, and dare I say to any other human tongue, but in Roman characters it was rendered Bizoctinwa. Upon my arrival in Greenland, I still had received no response from Garland, so I went to the bar in Nuke where we had previously met. While waiting for the bartender, I glanced at my phone. Wet bulb temperature concerns world governments. Heat could kill millions. The bartender, a stocky man of middle age and thin mustache, interrupted my reading and greeted me. When I inquired about Garland, he assured me he had not seen her for eight days when he had physically removed her for starting a fight with a Norwegian tourist. Apparently, the altercation began when Garland implied that the tourist's grandfather had not been descended from Vikings, but rather a band of lost Frenchmen reeking of sheep dung. 
As the bartender told his tale and I sipped a fine Japanese whiskey, I noticed another patron listening from the bar, a woman of average build with short hair and round glasses. She turned to us and introduced herself as Kalina. I knew Garland. Oh, a friend? Something like that. Drinking companion, maybe. After she got kicked out, I saw her stumble off with some weirdo. Anyone you recognize? I don't know, some white man? I thanked Kalina and the bartender, paid for my libation, and decided to sleep off my jet lag. As I walked to my hotel, body in shock at the cold of November in Greenland, I became further disconcerted about Garland's disappearance. I attempted to pacify myself with the thought that she was probably fine and had gone in search of suitable, and hopefully legal, artifacts. I also lamented that my search had reached something of a dead end. Meanwhile, my thirst to behold that ghastly statue churned in the depths of my consciousness. But then, just as I reached my hotel, I recalled that I did, in fact, have one further lead. The Swiss climate scientist, Leuenberger. Floods in Asia, Caribbean, threatened tens of millions, was the headline that greeted me the next morning. After reading about this diluvial doom, I searched for Leuenberger and found his location immediately via his online presence. He was only about 200 kilometers from Nuke, collecting ice core samples with his team. As happenstance would have it, he mentioned a load of supplies was arriving from Nuke via helicopter. I finished my breakfast as I inquired online and discovered I could, for a fee, book passage on the supply-run helicopter. Some minutes later, as I left the hotel, I noticed a man sitting in the lobby. His eyes were fixed on me. He was wearing a fine, tailored suit, but a bit crumpled as if he had been sitting for some time. His bushy hair and wire-framed glasses were not unusual, but when I stepped closer to him I noticed an unsettling aroma. Charcoal with a hint of gasoline. Mr. Shawley. He rose and spoke with a calm yet sharp voice. His accent was difficult to place, but he spoke as someone who had learned British English in school. Yes? We told you we are watching. He who compels from the ice is waiting. I blinked. I... I met one of your compatriots. What do you want? My pulse accelerated. Garland was a warning. You cannot stop us. We will come for you. He will come for us all. I stumbled backwards but did not fall. What, what, what of Garland? Where is she? The man stepped closer. The odor of gasoline intensified. Unfrozen eons drown the future. I ran. I did not turn back as I exited the hotel and made my way down the street. My entire being was submerged in dread. I felt incapable of higher cognitive functions, yet a single thought erupted into my consciousness. I did not even have a chance to return the walrus ivory carving to its governmental owners. Several hours later, I was gliding through the air above the unfathomably vast plain of ice. It was difficult to believe these measureless ancient fields of white and blue could be endangered by anything so feeble as the actions of human beings. Yet, as I suspected then, and know now with a certainty I desire not to possess, all things in this universe are subject to the laws of entropy, and decay frozen cathedrals erected over geologic eons, species carved by the slow knives of evolution, and, yes, my own life, as well as this tale. Best I be on with it, then. A few objects sprouted upon the horizon, growing to reveal three structures. A large black dome, a small blue shed, and a gray oblong building larger than the shed and smaller than the dome. 
Outside the dome sat a snowmobile and a large truck with snow treads. The helicopter landed about 30 meters from the dome, swirling ribbons of snow glinting in the sun. Two figures emerged from the gray oblong building. They joined the pilot and me in unloading supplies. As the helicopter rose again into the heavens and we closed the door of the gray building, the denizens of the ice spoke to me. So, you're the stowaway. We heard you were coming. The figure removed his hood to reveal a bearded man with dark hair and beady eyes. The building smelled of mildew and melted snow with a glint of gasoline that I had also smelled on the helicopter. The interior was lit by small LCD lights, yet dark compared to the brilliant realm outside. I'm something like a stowaway, I suppose. I'm surely. I removed my mitten to shake his hand. He observed my bare hand for a moment, and he shook my hand without removing his mitten. I'm Gunter. This is Astrid. He gestured towards the other figure whose red hair spilled out of her hood. She offered a mittened hand, shook mine for half a second, and then turned back to the supplies. You're all Swiss? No, just me and Carl. Astrid spoke. I'm a Dane, and our Canadian Rockford is running around here somewhere. She glanced at Gunther. I'm surprised we're hosting another visitor so soon after... Was it Garland? Gunther glanced back at Astrid. They were silent for two seconds before she spoke. There was an incident. Best to talk to Carl about it. Carl is... Leuenberger? Where is he? Gunther and Astrid pointed to their left. In the dome? They both nodded. I opened the door into complete darkness. Or so it seemed, coming from the blazing world of ice. Mr. Shorley, I presume, a voice rattled from the black. Lewenberger? Yes, you've come a long way, Mr. Shorley. An outline of a man began to sharpen in my vision. He had short yellow hair and wore a white sweater, face illuminated by a laptop open on a table. The environment inside this building was much the same as the other, although there was a hint of ozone and the hum of electronic equipment working in the gloom. The outline of a monstrous column crystallized, presumably housing the drill. I've been keen to make your acquaintance ever since our mutual friend Garland mentioned you. Garland? An amusing enough drinking companion, but what happened to her? Oh, she... died. Suicide, I'm afraid. I gasped. I'm... I'm sorry to hear that. A tragedy, yes, but... He shrugged. There was a strange statue she showed me. I was appalled by the death of my acquaintance, yes, but the pull of the artifact from the ice was greater yet. She stole it, last time I was in Nuke. We heard that she had shown it to you. I had to retrieve our priceless artifact. I collected Garland outside that miserable bar she loved in Nuke so she could understand her mistake. Fear spread through my chest like ice forming on the surface of a pond. What did you do? She was an inconvenience. I thought it was suicide, in a sense. What else would you call it, stealing from us, knowing what she knew? He paused. Or coming here, knowing what you know. Suicide is common here, Inventor. I turned towards the door, ready to run, but then I saw it. That crocodilian infant sneered at me as Lewenberger removed it from a cabinet. Looking for this? He who compels from the ice? And then he uttered some strange series of continents. We are looking for more, you know. B why? We servants of 
He again uttered that sound, which on the second occurrence I understood as bzaknwa. He who compels from the ice is coming, soon, and when he does, we will be ready. The earth will be ready. But, but, why? Why do they do it? Why do you? You, me, all of humanity doomed? I don't understand. But, my friend, you do understand, or you will, before the end. We sacrifice ourselves, we sacrifice humanity for the sake of being greater and wiser than we. There's a nobility to it. Entranced again by the pull of the artifact, Lewenberger made some sort of sense. The history of the most powerful among us marching into the maw of their own destruction made sense. Those eldritch lines on the child beast's face made sense. Looking into that pale, uncanny face, I felt the pull of the mania that drove them. All these centuries, all these carbon-belching machines of industry spreading over the earth, all these healthier technologies nullified, all these short-sighted decisions of governments and oligarchs for immediate profit at the expense of humanity's survival. I saw it. I saw it all, clear as the icy certainty of death. Suddenly, this doom did not seem short-sighted, but rather it had a calculating rationality powered by the far-seeing vision of some inscrutable benefit. Just not the benefit of humanity. Madness! Pure madness, I murmured, still ensorcelled by the artifact, disbelieving my own accusations. Madness? But you have seen it. I can see. What the lesser beings call madness, greater creatures call a plan. He paused to let a thought simmer. In my dreams I see another figure on the ice. That's why we're drilling so late in the season. We will find it soon. We were blasted with light and cool air. A figure stepped behind me. Ah, Rockford, please show our guest to his quarters. I have a job for him. I felt the steel pinch of a needle in my neck. My consciousness dissolved into nothingness, as eventually will all things. I did not dream. When consciousness dawned again, I heard a thwapping in the air, felt a rumble in the earth. Helicopters. It was dark and cold, but I was inside and wearing my parka. As my eyes adjusted, I could see a figure seated in the shadows about two meters away near the opposite wall. I inferred that I was in the small shed. I did not know what day it was. Hello? There was no answer. I was unbound, so I moved towards the figure, limbs dragging through the sludge of whatever drug they had given me. A noisome odor beset my awareness. In the dim light of the small LCD light in the middle of the structure, I could see that the figure was covered in a blanket. Who is it? Hello? I removed the blanket and screamed. It was Garland. A grisly flower of curdled blood and flesh sprouted from the right side of her face, no doubt the result of her suicide. I scrambled back to the other side of the shed. I screamed again. I pounded on the door. Help! Help! Let me out! I thought my cries had been lost in the thunder of the helicopters, but then the door opened. A figure in a parka stepped through, a man with short black hair. I did not recognize him. Rockford, perhaps. I summoned what will to survive that I still possessed and pushed past him. He tripped and fell into a box of supplies. I did not turn back to see if he arose. I ran. Cold, dry air burned my lungs. I was groggy, yet I ran. 
Through the frost of pure terror, I was aware of at least five or six helicopters encircling the camp, landing and discharging their passengers. The sun was setting on one horizon, and on the other a great bonfire blazed. The smell of charcoal and gasoline wound its way through the breeze. While a deeper atavism within me wanted nothing but to run, something called me to that fire. I felt the pull. I stopped running and turned. I walked slowly toward the fire. The new arrivals were walking toward it as well, none of whom, it would seem, had heard my screams over the landing helicopters. They were all wearing parkas, of course, but I could see under their hoods that they were all impeccably groomed. I thought I recognized one celebrity billionaire among them. Looking toward the fire, I could see Leuenberger and Gunther and Astrid, too. They were standing in front of the fire, and as the helicopter engines ceased their growls one by one, I could hear them chanting, Bezachtenwa! Bezachtenwa! I could not tell if they saw me, but at that moment I also ceased to care, for Leuenberger held the ghastly artifact in his left hand, but in his right, another artifact. The new statue was more octopoid than crocodilian, yet with the same eldritch lines, the same sneer of disinterested contempt. Bezachtenois, it would seem, had many faces. I glanced toward the fire. I gathered with the newcomers around the flames. I noticed a man next to me, the one I had seen in my hotel in Nuke. About two meters to my left, I noticed a famous American capitalist, and next to her, the small woman who had threatened me in Tennessee. All were enthralled by the artifacts. I was not worried at that moment. I was content to bask in the inexorable fire as it melted the ice below. The chants of Bizoctinois grew louder, steadier. Leuenberger held up both artifacts and screamed, Anfrosen eons drown the future! Gasoline and smoke assaulted my olfactory consciousness. Flames reached high into the dusky sky. Whether I then regained my sanity or extinguished it, I cannot say, but I gathered my scraps of humanity into myself. I thought of the vast tides of humanity alive and those yet to be born. I thought of the precious throngs of life on earth. I thought of my cats, secure in the knowledge that Ms. Morris would find them a suitable home when I did not return. I had seen enough. I rejected the call of Bizoctinois. I turned away, and I stumbled towards the crepuscular horizon, leaving the flames and conspiracies behind. I walked for a quarter hour, I think, snow and ice crunching rhythmically beneath my boots before I heard the whine of a snowmobile. I turned to see the headlight bobbing up and down, framed by the bonfire in the distance. A crack of a rifle exploded from the snowmobile, and I felt a rift in the air to my left. A tranquilizer dart stuck in the ice. I turned to run as there was another crack and I was knocked to the ground. A dart protruded from my back. As I was swirling into unconsciousness, the man I presumed to be Rockford loomed over me. He was cradling the right side of his head. Mr. Shorley, don't worry, I'm fine. Just a little bump. He pointed to his head. You can't leave. We have a job for you. Near the beginning of my tale, I said half-jokingly that I had become an amateur climate scientist. And so I have, in a manner of speaking. After dreaming again of cyclopean beings descending into prehistoric ice, I awoke in the black dome with the drill. I was alone. The building was lit by LCD lights and the red coils of the heating units on the floor. A note next to a laptop instructed me to play a video. Mr. Shorley. It was Leuenberger. 
his hair disheveled. The others, including the small woman and the hotel lobby man, packed supplies behind him. You have an important job. Bizoctinois planted an image in my dreams. A third figure awaits us in this location. I need you to find it. I have utter business. The society wishes to see the other figures to recruit, and my people are needed elsewhere. We are so close now, so close. He paused. No, I know, you're not a climate scientist, but you can follow the instructions here. He picked up a large white binder and take notes here. He held up a black and white notebook, the type of composition book that I thought of as old-fashioned. The binder and notebook were on the table next to me. You won't be perfect. We can operate the drill mostly remotely, but we need you in case things go wrong. And to execute certain commands, see the manual. Food and water are in the shed. We will return in a week. We will decide your fate at that time. You might live if you complete this task, of course, and don't think of leaving before we return. We left you no transportation. You won't survive more than a few hours on the ice in winter. It would be, well, suicide. <laughs> he chuckled. The video ended. Not knowing what else to do, I read the manual. I was to enter a command in the system once the safety protocols were confirmed, and I was to turn it off when the core was complete. I contemplated whether to acquiesce to my captor's intentions. I could feel the pull of another artifact. What if I were to use it for my own ends before humanity drowned? Could it even become a force for good? Could I fight the human greed that Bazoktinwa and his unfathomable compatriots had manipulated for their own impenetrable ends? A message appeared on the laptop. Time to begin. Turn to page 37. Follow directions. I almost did so. Almost. But I remembered another section of the manual about what might happen if safety protocol 5C were not followed. The drill might overheat, create a spark. It could cause a fire. I smiled. And here I rest on the ice, watching the black dome burn in the night. Columns of fire and the smell of burning wires and canvas announce my extinction to the indifferent blue-white plain glinting in the moonlight. There's a macabre beauty to this scene, as I hope against dread that all that I have learned does not come to pass. Yet, he is out there still, and those powerful few who follow him too. Would that humanity had not been so instrumental in its own doom. Would that I could return behind that veil of ignorance. I see now that the ignorant and the wise alike will face the unfrozen eons. Whether humanity's future will be drowned, I cannot say. My only hope now is that this notebook, if found in some inscrutable future in Eldritch Place, might dissuade other beings that come after us from imbibing their own destruction. And that is the end of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, come join Alhambra's army of champions on the Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. You get access to a special bonus reading twice monthly at the $5 and above tiers. Please check out The String of Pearls or The Barber of Fleet Street on my YouTube, new chapters every other day. Also, check out the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, my debut collection of weird fiction. 
14 interconnected tales telling an overarching story of love and revenge. All links in the show notes. Please go and get vaccinated for everything you are available to get. If you see a racist or homophobe out and about and doing a homophobia, spill a drink on them. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.